Well, good evening and welcome to the Centre for Independent Studies. Uh, my name is Tom Switzer. I'm the Executive Director here at CIS. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with CIS, we're a public policy research organisation that's primarily committed to promoting the principles of classical liberalism, individual freedom, limited democratic government, uh, productivity enhancing reform, promoting literacy and numeracy in our primary schools, and not least uh, defending the institutions uh, that have made of help make this nation great. Um, for many decades now, CIS has been a major uh, participant in the public policy debates in Canberra and across the country, but we've tried to do so in a way that speaks above uh, the toxic polarisation that all too often characterises public discourse in this country and in many parts of the Western world. Now, when we advertised this event about a month or so ago, the subject orig originally was going to be on immigration. Um, <laughs> but given the tumultuous events in Canberra during the course of the last week that culminated in the changing of prime ministers in the federal government, we thought we'd have a more general discussion about the landscape, the political landscape in Canberra and the broad body politic. Uh, Tony Abbott, of course, was Prime Minister of our country from 2013 to 2015. <coughs> he was the leader of the Federal Liberal mm. Party from 2009 to 2015. And since 1994, he has been the federal member for the electorate of Warringah. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Tony Abbott. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Well, Good mate. on you, Tom. Well, thanks, Tom. It's wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to be amongst so many great Australians. I'm particularly pleased that my state parliamentary colleague, Damien Tudorhope, is here. I'm delighted that the former chairman of my Economic Advisory Council, Morris Newman, is here. And I'm told that the former long-serving secretary of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, Maxmore Wilton, is here. So. Um, I realise that I am amongst my elders and betters and hopefully will behave myself uh, on that score. Look, uh, I want to express my hope and confidence that politics today is in better shape than it was just a few days ago. I think that our polity will be far less toxic in the near future than it has been in the recent past, and I think that will be good for all of us. Certainly it will be good for the Liberal Party and it will be good for our country. I should say, in defence of my friend and colleague Peter Dutton, that he was a most reluctant challenger last week, a most reluctant challenger. Just as uh, I was back in 2009, Peter Dutton last week was someone who, above all else, wanted to change policy, uh, not to change leader. And I am confident, given the remarks of new Prime Minister Scott Morrison, I am confident, uh, given the ministerial appointments that he's made, that there will be better policy, there will be uh, a, uni a united party, and there will be a sharper difference with our opponents. Uh, the new energy minister is Angus Taylor and we all know that Angus Taylor is not only a man of fine character but a man of deep common sense and experience in this area. Uh, I am confident, as the Prime Minister says, that policy will be run to cut price, not to cut emissions. Emissions are not irrelevant. Uh, but the important thing is to get price down and to let emissions look after themselves. And I'm also confident with uh, Alan Tudge in a new population role, and he has been a sensible and sensitive speaker on this subject uh, over recent months, that immigration will go more closely hand in hand with integration, and in particular, uh, the stress for all primary applicants will be on having a job and joining our team 
and making a contribution from day one. And this will make a good government better. And I want to stress that this has been a good government. Our borders have been secured. Our trade has been strengthened. Our taxes have been reduced. Our spending has been disciplined. And we will be better in the future than we have been in the recent past because the government is now in that sensible centre-right liberal conservative mainstream uh, so well described by John Howard just a few years ago when he said that the centre of gravity of our party is to be economically liberal and socially conservative. I think that uh, Prime Minister Morrison very much appreciates that successful politics is always based on good values. And as I've often said, again echoing John Howard, that as Liberals, we believe in smaller government, lower taxes and greater freedom. As Conservatives, we believe in the family, small business and values and institutions that have stood the test of time. But above all else, as patriots, we want our country to be stronger. Based on what we know works and on the great strengths that have made us who and what we are. And this is why there are some constants in the policies of Liberal National Coalition governments. Lower taxes, <coughs> less red tape, a tight rein on spending, uh, particularly on the establishment of new programs because we all know that once a program is in place, it develops a constituency and it's very, very difficult then ever to change, let alone to repeal. Strong borders, a strong and effective military, strong alliances. Uh, in education, excellence. In healthcare, choice. And when it comes to social security, uh, we want the system to be more like a trampoline than a hammock. That's always been our approach, and certainly that will be our approach uh, in the future under Scott Morrison. So, I think that uh, the policy contest will be sharper. And I think that's important because when you look around the world, things are becoming more divided, not less. When you look around the world, political differences are widening, not narrowing. And if I may say so, one of our mistakes in recent times has been uh, seeking a false consensus rather than prosecuting a real contest. Uh, look around the world, as I say, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, the most left-wing leader the British Labor Party has ever had. Bernie Sanders, um, the only avowed socialist ever elected to the US Congress, as far as I'm aware, uh, almost won the Democratic Party a nomination for the recent election. Now, I don't for a second say that Bill Shorten is in and of himself uh, nearly as left-wing as that. Uh, I know Bill Shorten well, and if he had his way, I'm sure uh, he would be a mainstream Labor leader. The trouble is, his political insecurity has, shall I say, uh, made his principles flexible. <laughs> and we don't need a Prime Minister whose economic policy strings are being pulled by the thugs of the CFMEU. We do not need a Prime Minister whose social policy strings and whose border protection policy strings are being pulled by the Green Left. 
We don't need new taxes on retirees who should not be punished for their hard work and for saving. We don't need new taxes on housing and investment, which will damage our economy at a critical time. We certainly don't need even more renewables. We certainly don't need even higher emissions reductions targets because that will just put power prices even further through the roof and that will just drive more jobs offshore. I have to say that uh, I've always thought that in all the vicissitudes of politics, what counted for most uh, is character. Uh, Scott Morrison has a strong and a good character. And may I express my fond hope that in the weeks and months and years to come, political success will be determined, again, more by character and less by polling. I accept that in this business of politics, people will always disagree. They will disagree within parties as well as disagree between parties. But the contest between parties should be conducted with respect and the contest within parties should be conducted with honesty. If we disagree, let us do it openly and honestly. Let us never in the future say one thing to someone's face and something totally different behind their backs. That has been the poison in our polity over the last decade of disappointment and that, above all <coughs> else, is what must end. I want to close and throw to uh, questions and comments uh, with this famous observation. It's not an observation of John Howard, although there are many lapidary observations of John's that I could cite. It's not a, an observation of Bob Menzies, our great and illustrious founder, although again, there are many I could cite. It is one of the most famous statements of Australian politics, but I believe it's something that partisans of both sides can savour and cherish. It is those words of Ben Chifley talking about that light on the hill. He said our great objective is not making someone Premier or Prime Minister. It's not putting sixpence more or less in someone's pocket. It is working for the betterment of mankind, not just here, but wherever we can lend a helping hand. <coughs> I think that is a marvellous encapsulation of the calling of public life. My objective has always been to try by my own efforts uh, and those of my colleagues to help all of us to come closer to being our best selves. And if we can't always be our best selves, at least let us be better. And I am confident that that will be the case as a result of the events of last week. <coughs> On the right, mate. On the right. Well, thank you, Tony Abbott. And before we uh, talk about uh, the public policy landscape, uh, we have to turn to politics to start with. Since 2010, we've had six prime ministerships. Rudd, Gillard, Rudd, you, Turnbull, and now Morrison. Uh, the BBC has called Canberra the coup capital of the world. <laughs> How do you account for this rapid turnover in such a short period of time? I want to make two observations, Tom. Uh, the first is that despite the goings-on in Canberra, uh, I believe our country has gone forward even in the last decade of disappointment because uh, in a country such as ours, uh, we don't look to government for everything. Uh, we make our own decisions. We run our own lives. We don't wait for government to tell us what to do. And the Australian people, in their decency and wisdom, have just got on with it as best they could. Uh, yes, government matters because, in the end, uh, we do make the laws. 
we do set the policies and it's important that the laws be as good as they can be and the policies be as sensible as they can be. But uh, nevertheless, uh, despite everything, we have gone forward uh, in the last uh, decade. Um, so that's the first observation. Now, I had another observation, but I, it slipped my <laughs> mind, given that I haven't got any notes in front of me. Well, let me volunteer something. <laughs> yeah. You could argue that we've had 27 years of uninterrupted growth. Yeah. We've got a very successful immigration policy yeah. that yeah. many countries around the world would die for. Yeah. Doesn't that indicate that... I remember what, what I was going to say. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, yes, the past decade has, at least up until now, been a disappointment. But let's not forget that the previous quarter century was really a rather remarkable period. Uh, is it the circumstances that have changed? Uh, is it the characters of the individuals at the top uh, which are different? I don't know. But certainly, uh, as a senior member of the Howard government, um, I was aware of plenty of disagreements, both across the aisle and on our side mm. of the aisle, and yet, um, I think there was a degree of respect between Howard and Hawke. Uh, there was a degree of respect between uh, Keating and Costello. Uh, there was a degree, uh, there was great respect and, uh, and solidarity uh, inside the senior yes, ranks of the Yes, but to Howard be fair government. though, Hawke, Keating, Howard, Costello, they never had to deal with this toxic polarisation of Twitter and social media. To what no extent doubt. has that changed things? No, look, th there is absolutely no doubt that the 24-7 media cycle uh, has made it harder. Uh, there is no doubt that uh, the public discourse has coarsened because it's more anonymous than ever before and anonymity uh, makes uh, vicious cowards of us all <laughs> if, uh, if we let ourselves uh, sink uh, to those depths. Okay, what are talking about Malcolm Turnbull? Yeah. He knifed you in 2015. He's been knifed last week. Um, what distinguished the coup, coups against Malcolm Turnbull from other coups? Well, again, I don't want to dwell too much on last week. I think the important thing is to uh, learn from last week and to um, uh, make the most of those, uh, those lessons. <laughs> But I reckon that uh, the lessons from last week are do not persevere in a policy which is causing massive divisions inside your own party room. So you're talking about the ETS uh, and, in 2009 and, and, and the NEG this and, time. And, yep. and do not light fuses under your own leadership uh -huh. uh, with unnecessary spills. How do you respond to the prevailing wisdom in much of the media, the Canberra Press Gallery, the ABC, the Guardian, the Fairfax Press, that says <laughs> that says that this uh, attempt to dislodge Turnbull, the uh -huh. successful attempt, was driven by the far right uh -huh. base of the Liberal Party uh -huh. that does not in any way, shape or form represent the values of middle Australia. How do you respond to that prevailing wisdom? Uh, well, I, I suppose if you listen to most most of those entities, uh, I'm part of the of the vast right wing conspiracy. <laughs> And yet uh, I led the party quite successfully uh, for four years in opposition, won a thumping majority in 2013 on what I thought were clear and strong policies. And then, uh, despite everything, managed to get quite a lot done in two years before uh, uh, the polls um, and, and various other factors intervened. So, look, um, I, I think that there is still a strong political constituency uh, for what might be described as centre-right liberal conservative values. They just need to be uh, clearly and intelligently expressed and wholeheartedly believed. Graham Richardson, the former Labor uh, minister, is uh, writing in the Australian newspaper mm -hmm. today and he says, quote, uh, that under Malcolm Turnbull, the rank and file in the Liberal base has deserted in droves to the point where finding the personnel to man polling booths is now a serious mm. problem. Richardson goes on to say, I'm disappointed to hear the new Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, will not be including Tony Abbott in his Cabinet. If he had included Abbott, the base would have been impressed and pleased. They would have returned to the fold and all would be forgiven. That was Graham Richardson in today's mm. Australian. Mm. 
Tony Abbott. <laughs> Look, um, I, I have a bit of time for Graham. <laughs> uh, he, 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 and, he and I have become, I think, friends over the last uh, uh, decade or so. Uh, and he's a very shrewd observer. But uh, I think I know the Liberal Party a lot better than he does. <laughs> and I am very confident that now that we have put the rancour of the last few years behind us, and I am absolutely confident that, that is the case. Um, I have certainly uh, put any uh, rancour that I may, may, have, may have felt uh, in that box that Kevin Rudd used to call the forgettery. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I am confident that uh, our party rank and file will be coming back in droves. Okay, well really the, the Prime Minister has... What, what, happened, what happened last week uh, was the worst thing for the Australian Conservatives possible because all of those people uh, who um, maybe gave up on us uh, have no reason whatsoever not to rejoin a sensible party of the centre-right that can actually get things done and not just cry in the wilderness. How do you think uh, Scott Morrison will distinguish himself from Malcolm Turnbull? I think he's very much a man of the party. Uh, he has a long history in the party. Uh, he's a former state director of the Liberal Party here in New South Wales. I think he very much appreciates that uh, the first task of leadership is to keep the team together and the second task of leadership is to give us something to fight for that we believe in. I think he understands that and that's what he'll get on doing. Okay, the Prime Minister has offered you a return from exile uh, in a special role of special envoy to the Prime Minister in Indigenous Affairs. Now, this would be outside the Cabinet, but according to the Daily Telegraph today in their editorial, this would represent an elevation. Uh, will you accept the Prime Minister's uh, offer to be a special envoy to the Prime Minister? Uh, we had a very good conversation about that yesterday, uh, half an hour or so before he announced the, the ministry. And I certainly think that there is a lot that can and should be done here. Uh, I guess I'd like to know uh, more... Uh, in terms of precisely what he has in mind, because uh, while, as you know, Tom, uh, I've spent uh, a lot of time, uh, both as a minister, a shadow minister, an opposition leader, a prime minister, and subsequently as a backbencher, I've spent a lot of time in Indigenous Australia, and there is so much to be done. Um, one of the problems, though, that bedevils Indigenous policy more than just about any other area of our public life uh, is governance, um, and and uh, I just want to make sure that if I am to do this, I won't be treading on the toes of people who are already there, given that there are so many people already there. <laughs> <laughs> when, when will you make that decision? Well, uh, he, he's thinking about it, uh, I'm thinking about it, uh, and uh, we'll do it as quickly okay. as possible. John Howard has said all too often that the Liberal Party is a broad church yep. of Liberals mm -hmm. and Conservatives, but yep. nevertheless, notwithstanding the new Prime mm -hmm. Minister, there are clearly still serious policy divisions in the, in the party room generally. You would have to think, given everything we've experienced over the last week. Let's turn to immigration just briefly. Your border protection policies helped mm -hmm. boost public confidence mm -hmm. in large-scale non-discriminatory mm -hmm. immigration. But in recent times, you have called for cutting immigration. Why, when the border protection policies help boost confidence in our immigration system? Uh, it's not so much a cut, more a restoration. Uh, I argued for a restoration of the kind of numbers that we saw during the Howard era, uh, as opposed to the absolute record numbers that we've seen over the last decade. Now, that's what I've argued for. and particularly given Alan Tudge's appointment to this new population role. He's the Minister for Congestion Busting. Uh, I suspect that we might see some movement there, but again, it's entirely in the hands of the new government, uh, but I'm confident that that's the direction we'll go in. It seems to me, though, uh, calls for cutting immigration across the Western world have escalated in recent times, yet no one really in Canberra, on either side of politics at a senior level, is calling for cuts. Why not? when there's polls that clearly indicate supporting cutting immigration? Uh, uh, well, two points. 
Tom. F first, uh, uh, I am a supporter of immigration. I think all of us are supporters of immigration uh, because just about all of us are immigrants or the descendants of immigrants. The question is the number and the type. I'm also a supporter of a non-discriminatory immigration program because there are any number of people who come to this country from very diverse backgrounds and become absolutely wonderful Australian citizens. Uh, but you can be uh, pro-immigration and pro-migrant without uh, necessarily thinking that the numbers can only ratchet upwards and without necessarily thinking that there's a kind of an unconditional, uh, you've got an unconditional right of entry. Uh, mm. As I used to say uh, as PM, we want everyone who comes here to join our team. Treasury modelling says that... Um, Best way migration... to join the team is to have a job from day one. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Treasury modelling says that uh, migration adds 1% to GDP and if you cut it, that increases the prospects of uh, a recession mm. that we probably would have had over the last 10 to 15 years. Your response? Uh, well, it's interesting uh, that you raise that point, Tom, because um, there is absolutely no doubt that um, in normal circumstances immigration does increase overall economic growth. But the impact on GDP per head uh, is not necessarily always as strongly positive. And yes, we haven't had a recession for 27 years uh, if you just look at overall economic growth. But if you look at uh, growth per head, growth per capita, we have had uh, a recession at the time of the global financial crisis. So that was a recession for individuals even if it wasn't a recession for the economy as a whole. And certainly over the last five years, uh, GDP per head has been growing on average at under 1%. And that's one of the reasons why, even though the overall figures look good, people don't feel that their prosperity is increasing. And this in turn drives the discontent, which is now so widespread. Climate energy policy clearly played a prominent role in bringing down three Prime Ministers, uh, Kevin Rudd on the emissions trading scheme, Julia Gillard, the carbon tax, and now arguably Malcolm Turnbull over the National mm. Energy Guarantee. And you won a landslide election in 2013, largely based on a mm. decision to repeal the carbon tax. Mm. Many ordinary voters would say, why won't the political elite recognise that you can't decarbonise the economy mm. if it means higher power prices? And jobs going offshore. Look, this is a, a very good question, and, and I have never been a true believer in the green religion. Uh, <laughs> and as time goes by, I suppose I become more and more sceptical. Uh, uh, if, if, if you look at what <coughs> energy and climate policies are linked to electoral success, uh, the obvious answer is um, go in with your focus mm. on what's good for people's cost of living. Uh, and uh, that's what I did in 2013. And we had a resounding victory. People said you couldn't do it. They said anyone who questions the uh, climate consensus in inverted commas uh, was politically doomed. That was the message from all of the pundits in 2009. Abbott can't win because mm. Abbott mm. questions the climate consensus. Well, we almost did win in 2010. and We had a thumping win mm. uh, in 2013 and I think our position was very strong and constant throughout that period. Now, you've argued that we should withdraw from the Paris International mm -hmm. Agreement on Climate Change. Yep. Now, unlike Kyoto, the protocol in uh, 1997, Paris is not legally binding, mm -hmm. it's not enforceable, it's yep. not verifiable. Yep. So what difference does it make if we stay in Paris? Uh, because Australian officials, unlike, say, French and Italian officials, uh, are a little bit more respectful of <laughs> rules. Uh, uh, and, and, and as long as... Our people think that there is a moral, if not a legal obligation, uh, they will act as though it is a legal obligation. And, and we know a lot more now than we did in the uh, middle of 2015. Uh, since then, we had the South Australian statewide blackout, uh, which was driven by um, the increasing fragility of um, baseload power 
and the increasing penetration of unreliable intermittent renewable mm. power. And we've also had the US pull out of Paris. And of course, we now know that China and India, uh, the first and fourth largest emitters respectively, uh, never signed up for any commitments uh, in Paris. Some uh, in say the they're chugging along the smoky path to prosperity. Well, and, 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 if, and if you were a governmental leader in India or China, you, the one thing you want above all else is to see the benefits of life in a country like this extended to their own citizens. I can remember years and years ago uh, visiting the Soviet Union in the days when that was still extant. And I think I can remember seeing slogans on buildings and bridges, um, communism equals workers' control plus electrification. Uh, they understood. I mean, they got so much wrong, the communists, but at least they understood <laughs> that electrification is at the heart of modernity. Mm. Uh, and that means power that actually works when you throw the switch, not that only works if the wind's blowing or the sun's shining. Culture. We had uh, former Prime Minister John Howard here a couple of months ago, and he reaffirmed his uh, disgust with uh, political correctness and mm. identity politics. Mm. Do you think we've got to a stage in this country and indeed many other parts of the West where certain subjects can't be discussed openly without inspiring mass hysteria? That's a good question, Tom. Uh, and again, I think the Twitterverse has coarsened debate, uh, no doubt about that. Uh, the level of abuse has gone up exponentially uh, thanks to uh, social media and the impact of social media on more mainstream media. Um, this whole quantum of moral outrage, the outrage industry slips into, into overtime instantly. Someone says something that upsets the commissars of political correctness. I absolutely accept that, but we still have to do what we can. Uh, we still have to do what we can, and um, it grieves me that um, we now get directives, even in the military, so it mm. seems, saying that you can't refer to people as he or she. Well, I mean... <laughs> Really and truly, how do you give an order to it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, on Friday, the, um, I was commissioned to write an article about what Scott Morrison should do yeah. uh, by, of all people, the Sydney Morning Herald. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they asked me what Morrison should do, and I made the point that we all too often hear about a school or a university or a company mm either promoting or pandering to a politically correct agenda in the name of diversity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I call on the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, to raise more doubts about this identity mm -hmm. politics. Mm -hmm. Will Scott Morrison do so? I, I, I am confident uh, that he will take a very sensible approach to all these things. And I absolutely agree with you that in the end, the job of a company uh, is not to facilitate social engineering. It is to serve its customers. It is to, uh, within reason, maximise return to shareholders and to be decent to its staff. In your speech, you made a, a point of putting these events of the last week in a global context. Mm. Uh, Trump, Brexit, uh, particularly around Europe, you're witnessing the resurgence of so-called populist movements mm. Uh, that threaten to upend political establishments mm. across the Western world. Do you think that we in Australia are at the point where there is a so-called populist movement that wants to rail against the political elite in Canberra, much as what we've seen in Britain, America and Europe in recent times? I think there are elements of the base of both parties that feel abandoned. I think that the traditional blue-collar worker feels rather neglected by a lot of uh, his or her um, Labor representatives. And I think the uh, traditional suburban or regional small business person sometimes feels uh, a little neglected by our side of politics. So I think the important thing is, to use a Reaganism, uh, always dance with the one that brung you. Uh, <laughs> But at the same time, you've got to reach out to sensible people uh, on the other side. Hawke did it, Howard did it uh, for a period 
uh, I was able to do it, and I think that Scott Morrison will be able to do that. Judith Sloan, uh, the economist who writes for the Australian newspaper, she said at the weekend, and she, by the way, was here at CIS uh, in a debate. She was yep. on Mark Latham's yep. side, mm -hmm. and they carried the day against uh, two economists for slashing immigration. Yep. And she argued uh, in the Australian that the key to mm. understanding the forces that effectively have ripped apart the Liberal Party and led to the departure of the Prime Minister is the distinction between what Judith Sloan calls globalism and nationalism. I'll just read this out. Mm -hmm. Globalism, according to Judith Sloan, involves a commitment to world outcomes, to concern for the welfare of all citizens of the world. In its extreme form, nation states disappear and we are all one big happy family. Judith Sloan goes on to say, nationalism, on the other hand, involves commitment to country with governments primarily concerned about the welfare of their citizens this often involves a considerable degree of pride in country on the part of citizens and a willingness to defend the borders and its way of life. Tony, where does the Liberal Party sit today? I have enormous respect for Judith Sloan, who is one of the best commentators we have. Very, very shrewd person, Judith. Uh, I would probably talk about uh, patriotism and love of country rather than nationalism. Uh, but I certainly think that uh, love of country is uh, a very, very, very powerful motivator for the vast majority of people. And I think that one of the first duties of any national leader is to do what he or she can to keep the character of our country. Mm. Uh, and that's not inconsistent with a large immigration program, uh, but if you lose control of your borders, uh, you are not keeping the character of your country. You are subjecting yourselves to what, on a sufficient scale, could easily become a peaceful invasion. And this is the kind of thing that has so worried the people of Europe. And this is the kind of thing that was starting to worry us mm. a great deal back in 2013. Now it's time for Q&A. And our first question comes from Eugenie Joseph, who's a colleague of mine. Uh, she's just written a paper on uh, childcare. Eugenie. Thank you, Tom. And thank you, Mr. Abbott, for your remarks. Um, you mentioned in your remarks the need for governments to cut spending and cut taxes. But we recently saw this rather slow and painful death of company tax cuts in the mm -hmm. Senate. It really seems that even though Speak up closer. age. Um, so so w what is left? Uh, realistic option, the way to support the economy and important to, to uh, appeal to voters. Okay, well, I'm in favour of cutting taxes and uh, if we got personal income tax cuts, I wouldn't be unhappy, I'd be happy. Uh, yes, you've got to do it responsibly and that's why spending restraint is at the heart of responsible tax cutting. But as I said, uh, uh, I'm not against personal income tax cuts. Uh, I'm not against company tax cuts either. In fact, I'm in favour of both. I think it's easier to pursue company tax cuts in a context of broader tax cutting. And um, let's see what the new government comes up with in that area. I note that uh, very early on in his treasurership, uh, Scott Morrison was talking about more comprehensive tax reform. Um, I'm not saying that that's going to go back onto the table, but certainly that is a sign of his broad disposition. And let's keep, uh, keep watching how the new government uh, develops. The next question comes from Bruce Watson, who's a member of the IPA, and I'm glad to say he's just joined us as a member of the CIS. Yeah. Bruce. It's obviously a very broad church here. <laughs> Look, thanks, Tony, for such an interesting uh, talk. But in the events of last week, one thing hadn't escaped me, that there's been a bit of a baton change in a generational sense. Uh -huh. That being said, and I'm also curious, given you're my, you're my local member, what do you see your future is in politics going forward? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I am 
very happy to remain your local member, Bruce, provided you uh, uh, continue to uh, vote for me. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and I think politics, like everything else, should be a blend of uh, youthful exuberance uh, and wisdom and experience. And I certainly think that I continue to have uh, quite a lot to contribute to public life. I think I've got a lot of public life left in me. Next question. Next question from Jacqueline Maley at the Sydney Morning Herald. Hi, Mr. Abbott. Um, thanks for the talk. Um, I've just got a question in two parts, if I may. First of all, Kevin Rudd, uh, some, com some comments by Kevin Rudd were published this morning in our newspaper, which said, he said that you had imposed on the Australian politics unique negativity, toxicity and hatred. He said that, <laughs> he said that you never cared about policy and that you were a wrecking ball in Australian politics. Sorry. I just wanted to get your response. I'm, don't shoot the messenger. Um, <laughs> and secondly, you famously said when uh, Mr Turnbull took over as Prime Minister that there would be no sniping mm -hmm. and no wrecking um, by you. And I just wanted to see if you would refresh that pledge. Okay, sure. Well, um, when, uh, when Julia Gillard lost the Prime Ministership, I made some sort of uh, ungenerous uh, private comment uh, to some friends of mine. And uh, one of these uh, friends, a very wise person, said to me, please, Tony, uh, she is a now and forever afterwards, as far as you're concerned, a respected former Prime Minister. Uh, because he said, one day you will be a former Prime Minister and <laughs> we want a bit of respect uh, in, that, uh, in that area. So look, I, 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 I'm not going to get into a slanging match with Kevin. Um, he has his views. Uh, he's welcome to them. I don't share them, but that's <laughs> him and this is me. Um, what about the question of as, sniping? As, as for sniping, now look, uh, it's true that prior to, the well, prior to the 2016 election, I wrote three pieces for Quadrant in defence of the Abbott government. And given the superabundance of criticism that the Abbott government was getting. I think there are about five books in succession, uh, all viciously critical of my government. And I suspect that they'd been written in advance of the demise of the Abbott government, given that they all came out so quickly. Anyway, I wrote three uh, <laughs> modest articles for Quadrant in defence of the Abbott government. Uh, apart from that, I really said nothing prior to the 2016 election. Um, what about because since I, the 2016 because, I, because, I, because I thought it was important to give um, the new Prime Minister and his government uh, clear air. Uh, we all know that it was a disappointing campaign and outcome. After the election, I thought, well, um, he didn't want me in his cabinet. Fair enough. That's the Prime Minister's choice. But as a backbencher, I have uh, a duty not just to do the right thing by my electorate, but where I can, offer some constructive observations about how the government uh, might improve. So I did that. Obviously, I was extremely critical of the so-called National Energy Guarantee. But in the end, even the Prime Minister was critical of the National Energy Guarantee because he dropped it um, <laughs> a week ago today. Um, and so I think there's a sense in which my criticisms were vindicated. Next question, Monica Lewis. Thank you for your candid comments this afternoon. Just wondering why over the past five years we seem to have forgotten about the national debt mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if that conversation will ever be rekindled. That's a very good question, Monica, and I see the chairman of my former Economic Advisory Council uh, looking uh, very uh, suggestively at me. <laughs> uh, I see my former chief economist, uh, Dr Andrew Stone, uh, grinning. Uh, as well. This is a, an absolutely critical question. Uh, I suppose the problem is that this is one of those areas which is very hard to tackle uh, in the absence of, of, a, of a watershed of some sort, perhaps even a crisis. Um, once you start talking about uh, a debt 
in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, if you throw everything in, even in the trillions, uh, I think people's eyes start to glaze over. But we all know that if you can't meet your mortgage repayments, you lose your house. We all know that if you can't meet your credit card repayments, uh, all of a sudden it's very hard to meet your daily living expenses. Um, governments are a bit different um, in that uh, uh, we trade, I suppose, on the confidence of the international community uh, and our ability to borrow is backed by sovereign power uh, in a way that corporations and families can't. But nevertheless, in the end, we still have to pay our way in the world. Uh, in the end, you cannot, government cannot spend a dollar that it doesn't raise from you, the citizenry, in taxes, or borrow uh, from you, the citizenry, and people overseas who might be prepared to lend to us. Uh, and, and that means that we have to have the capacity to raise the money to fund our daily expenditure uh, and to pay for our previous expenditure that was based on borrowing by meeting the interest repayment. So we just have to do that. Um, and uh, I think that at the very least, what we need to do is to be absolutely disciplined about new spending. And I'm pleased to say that in both of my years as PM, uh, I think in the first year, real spending growth was negative. In the second year, real spending growth was under 1%. Uh, it's remained pretty disciplined, uh, but I think there's going to have to be at least as much discipline in the near future as there has been in the recent past. Next question from April Palmley, who's head of the Australian American Chamber of Commerce. Thank you very much for honouring your commitment to speak to us today, despite everything that's gone mm -hmm. on. I'm struck by the similarity between the Republican Party of 2016 and the Liberal Party today, mm -hmm. with so much fighting within the party, not focusing on, on fighting the opponents, with voters in both countries less supportive of politicians who will compromise. What do you think the party needs to do to win next year? Well, um, despite the difficulties that the Republican Party had in 2016, they did win the election. I mean, that's the point, isn't it? Uh, Donald Trump was a disruptor inside the Republican Party. He was a disruptor in terms of the overall polity, but albeit by a pretty narrow margin, he did win the election. And while there hasn't been a lot of finesse about some of the things that he's done, uh, I would say that on balance, he has done more good than harm. And that this is going to be a significant, a significant presidency in the way that not all presidencies are. Uh, what we have to do is, is twofold. It's, uh, we need to uh, reunite, and I think that has largely taken place just in the space of a few short days. And we need to sharpen the policy differences with our opponents. And again, I think that's already happening. So I'm confident that we do now have a better than fighting chance of winning the next election because even in our most difficult recent days, an enormous number of people, <coughs> including people who are not our natural supporters, looked at the other side and said, my God, uh, we don't want that. So I think that we now have a pretty good chance of winning the next election. I'm not saying we get, we're favourites by any means, but I think, but I think, I think we now are competitive. Uh, and as long as you're in the race, you can always win. Next question, it's Bruce, isn't it? Yep. Um, Mr Abbott, <coughs> the Australian National Audit Office has pointed out to the Electoral Commission on <coughs> five annual reports ending up in 2015 that they are not doing their job. There's a section uh, 99AA2C2 which is an open door for anybody who wants to get on the roll using any name or any address. 
I've raised this with Malcolm Turnbull. Mm -hmm. He's done nothing about it. And I believe unless this is corrected, Labor will do what they did in Victoria when they got rid of Dennis Napthine by targeting the marginals and filling it with the help of Get Up uh, and the other friends. Okay, what do well, you reckon well, should well, be done? Well, Bruce, look, Thanks, Bruce. you have been a very long-time campaigner for electoral law reform, and I thank you for all of, all of your work. Um, I, I think, I mean, uh, I, I, I didn't study the outcome of that particular election <coughs> as closely as perhaps I, I should have, but my impression was that it wasn't so much irregular voting, it was more a question of stacking the booths with people purporting to be nurses, fireys and others. Uh, and this was the unions up to their usual tricks uh, rather than people turning up and voting early and voting often, so to speak. So, so but, but look, I, I, I do agree with you that we do have to have a secure role and for the life of me, I don't see why you shouldn't have to produce uh, some significant form of ID when you go on the roll and have to produce some form of ID when you turn up to vote. Uh, I mean, let's face it, we can't open a bank account these days without uh, producing vast amounts of documentation uh, and verification. Why shouldn't we have to do something uh, to demonstrate who we are before going on the roll? And, given that they won't let us on an air flight without showing a photo ID, why don't we at least have to show something uh, before we vote? So I agree with you. The problem always is that to do this uh, probably requires a degree of bipartisanship, uh, and that's often lacking. And it's a second order issue for every government. Uh, and it's when you fix the first order issues that you start getting onto the second order issues. And, and, and I think that's been the problem, Bruce. It's uh, something that uh, the Howard government would have liked to have done, but never quite got around to it. It's something that I wanted to do, but never quite got around to it. And I'm sure it was something that Malcolm Turnbull would have liked to have done and never quite got around to it. I suspect the Morrison government would like to do it as well. I hope I'm not putting words in anyone's mouth, but there's only probably nine or ten months till the next election and it might be very difficult to get it done, but certainly it should eventually be done. We have time for at least two more questions. Next one from Professor Bruce McKern, uh, formerly at Stanford University in California. Bruce. Uh, thank you, Tom. Uh, Mr Abbott, um, I'd like to come back to the question of the broad church, church yeah. for a moment if we can, because that's been raised quite often today. Mm. During the leadership um, brouhaha, uh, there were a number of commentators, I think Amanda Vanstone was amongst them, mm -hmm. saying that the Australian electorate is in the middle and therefore the party has to be in the middle. Mm -hmm. uh, you've advocated um, taking positions on key issues that are considered important for the electorate, and I think that's the right direction. But uh, is, there any re is there any truth in this idea that the Liberal Party has to shift to the left in order to satisfy the middle ground? Well, if you look at, if you look at the Liberal Party's great successes uh, under Menzies, under Fraser and under Howard, <coughs> we never shifted to the left. Uh, if anything, we shifted to the right. Now, you don't want to go sort of too far, but on the other hand, you don't want people to be in any doubt as to what you believe and as to what you're trying to do. And in the end, politics is a contest. And you don't win the contest by saying, well, actually, my policy is the same as that guy's, but I'm better looking or smarter than that guy. Uh, you win the contest by saying, well, I might not be the smartest guy, I might not be the best looking and the most charismatic guy in this, but I tell you, I've got these policies that are going to make your life better for this and that and that other reason. That's what I think you've got to do all the time. Next, and I think the final mm. question. Sorry, the bright light in my eye. I couldn't quite catch your face. Your name? Denise. Denise. Hi, Tony. I would uh, like to ask you to take a message back to Prime Minister Morrison mm -hmm. and the party. Labor's going to come out with an almighty campaign, particularly on health and education. Mm -hmm. And their answer is throw more money, more money. Mm -hmm. That isn't the answer. Mm. The answer 
answer is better educational outcomes mm -hmm. so our children can move from the lower length right up to... Yeah. Message going to be, it can't be we're going to match that income spending. Uh, I agree with you. I, I think that we will always struggle to win an auction uh, because we don't really believe in spending more and more uh, when, as you so rightly say, uh, when it comes to education, it's about excellence, uh, not about spending. Uh, you can have a great school with pretty ordinary facilities, provided you've got teachers who love their subject, are good with their kids, uh, and you've got kids that are just burning with a curiosity to learn and to get ahead. And so it's those underlying cultural attitudes that are really most important, and that's what we've got to get back to. I should stress now is as good a time as any to say that CIS has an excellent education program yeah. <laughs> uh, led by Jennifer Buckingham, whom you know, Tony, mm -hmm. and uh, Blaise Joseph, among others. And uh, they have emerged as arguably this mm. nation's leading defenders of NAPLAN, mm. but also the leading critics of Gonski 2.0. Mm. So yeah. follow it up if you're mm. interested. Ladies and gentlemen, we're about to run out of time. I'd like to call on my colleague and the head of our Culture, Prosperity and Civil Society program, Jeremy Samet, to make some concluding remarks. <clears throat> Thanks, Tom. Look, while it's impossible to separate the political events, not only of last week, but of the last 10 years from the personalities involved, I think it's important for the reasons that we've heard today to focus on what these events also suggest about the bigger political picture. I think that the two most important books on contemporary politics and political disruption in the early 21st century have already been written. And they are Charles Murray's Coming Apart and David Goodhart's The Road to Somewhere. Now, both these books discuss, in the US and the UK respectively, the growing divide in worldviews, aspirations, values, and attitudes to key issues between what is variously termed the elites or the metropolitan sophisticates or sometimes the political class and ordinary suburban voters. Now, the Australian version of these books, which might one day ponder the difference between what we might call the Wentworth and the Warringah views of the world, <laughs> are yet to be written. But I just want to give a little potted version based on what I think are some of the key issues at the heart, well, what are obviously the key issues at the heart of the political divide in Australia, which are energy and immigration. The political class treats these issues in abstract status terms. What will the so-called international community, i.e. my elite peers in a handful of Western nations around the world, think about Australia slash me if we don't cut emissions or if our immigration program isn't large. I don't think that's the way that ordinary voters and ordinary people feel about these issues. For them, the issue is whether they can affordably heat or cool their homes and whether the lights stay on. It's about whether they can afford a home or about how difficult it is to start a family without the security of home ownership. It's also about how long and crowded the journey to work is, and also about the family time that's lost on the commute. Now, the key issue, these key issues are very ordinary issues, but they're also the issues that are crucial to both the meaning and purpose of life, work, home, and family. And whether we like it or not, the perception and reality is that on these key issues, government policy actions and failures is making life harder. Harder, I think, by distorting the social equation between effort and reward, not only in monetary terms, but also in terms of quality of life. Now, when the response from the political class amounts to saying, just shut your eyes and think of the headline GDP figure, it's no wonder that we're getting political disruption and that people are turning to populist alternatives of all political <laughs> persuasions that empathise with the grievances but don't really have any <coughs> solutions. Many commentators also render popular concerns about these issues, such as immigration and the political dynamics they inspire, in abstract terms as you know, a nativist backlash, as reactionary, or as a revolt, revolt by the so-called unrepresentative base. Now, the, the problem with this kind of, I think, tin-eared and pejorative analysis is that it ignores 
both the ordinariness and the crucial importance of what is behind the present political discontents in societies like Australia and the UK and the US as well. And also those commentators who prefer to shoot the messages, shoot the messengers who speak about these issues rather than address the substance of the issues are not only doing a disservice to their fellow citizens, they're also helping to fuel the disruption and polarisation that they otherwise lament. So I would like to thank Mr Abbott for coming here today under difficult circumstances and for discussing some of these questions for us. And I'd also like to thank him for helping the CIS uh, be what it aspires to be, which is a clearinghouse for ideas and issues that some people don't want to discuss, but which we must. Please join me with Ian. Thank you. Well done. That's great, mate.